Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together and look at your word together, and we ask that it would change us, transform us, grow our love for you. Um, we thank you that your word teaches us that your mercies are new every morning, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We thank you that it also teaches us that sin no longer has to be our master because of what Christ has done in redeeming us. Um, we thank you for this record and mark of the life of Jesus and his teachings, and I pray that as we read it, we would uh, be drawn into living like this, that it would be the desire of our heart to be like our master and to follow where he leads. And so, Lord, to that end, we ask that you would work this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We can make, make room here. you got plenty of space. All right, so we're picking up in Mark chapter 8, verse 10. And uh, I think that, you know, when, when Mark wrote his gospel, he did not have chapters. Um, so it's not like he thought about, you know, sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we break it into chunks based on the chapters or the verses. But that's not the way that the authors were thinking about it. The verses and chapters were added much, much, much later. So, uh, you know, it's not as if Mark was thinking, oh, okay, chapter 8, here's the content I want for chapter 8. But I do think that chapter 8 marks a bit of a transition in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we'll talk about that as we get a little bit further in. Just pick up with me in verse 11. It says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Anybody feel like they've ever been drawn into a conversation where the other person just wanted to argue? Okay, I think it's telling that Mark gives us this phrase. The Pharisees came and began to ask him questions, no, uh, you know, inquire about his teaching, no, marvel at his miracles, no, what did they come to do? They came to argue. And that uh, doesn't set the tone for this little interaction in a very positive way. Uh, Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of context for this particular interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you notice, if you go back to verse 10, he got out of the boat in this area of Dalmanutha, and uh, he's going to. Jesus is going to end up in Bethsaida. So he, that's down in verse 22. So he's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee now. Um, but uh, there's not really any kind of context for this. He just he gets off the boat and suddenly he's in this argument with the Pharisees, and they request from him a sign. So the Pharisees were often engaged in trying to test Jesus. That, that happens a few times in the Gospels. And you can see at the end of verse 11, they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Um, I think it's important to remember that Jesus is teaching Jewish things to Jewish people, but he's not what we would call like an authorized Jewish teacher. So I try to think of a way to illustrate this. It would be like somebody opening up a McDonald's restaurant that isn't, you know, paying franchise fees, <laughs> that, that isn't an official like McDonald's brand, okay? Jesus is doing, teaching from the Old Testament. He's, he's offering a new interpretation of those teachings based on what he has come ultimately to do. And uh, he's doing this without the Pharisees really being uh, in approval of his teaching. Okay. So they're testing him to see if there's any validity to his message. Uh, it's also important to understand that Jesus was not the first person to claim to be the Old Testament Messiah, nor would he be the last to claim to be the Old Testament Messiah. So there might be some validity to them testing him because they've kind of seen this phenomenon before. Um, but I don't think, again, that the tone of verse 11 is that they sincerely are interested in hearing what he has to say. They think that they're going to come in and make him look like a fool, prove that he's not somebody special, and, and then, 
you know, tear down his ministry. So Mark includes this little encounter. Really, this is almost the center of Mark. I mean, I didn't go through and like count all the verses to ex figure out exactly where the center is, but Mark has 16 chapters to it. So this is somewhere right in the middle. And at this point, how many miraculous signs has Jesus given? Many, right? What's that? More than it says in the book. Even more than it says in the book, right? We know that because at the end of John, John says if all the, the things that he did were written down, we wouldn't even have the, enough books to record them. But Mark has recorded dozens of miracles, like kind of specifically, and he's referenced, um, you know, other miracles, healings, and things like that beyond what he has specifically chosen to record. Now, technically, the sign that they're looking for is not exactly a miracle. It's rather some kind of official authorization from God, okay? Um, there is a little bit of like technical language here in Mark's gospel about signs versus miracles, but uh, plenty of signs have still been given. Can you guys think of any? Besides the miracles, besides the, the miraculous like healings and things that Jesus has done, what other signs do you remember from the Gospels? His baptism. His baptism, absolutely. Right? That was a, a, a miraculous sign. Any other ones? His conception. Yeah, the virgin birth, right? That's a sign. And there's some indication in the Gospels that, like, the Pharisees know that Jesus doesn't have a father or that, like, the, the scenario around his birth is abnormal, suspicious, if you will. Also, when he was a child in the temple and he was teaching the Pharisees and all of them. Yeah, I think that's another one, right? He's like 10 or 12 in that scene, maybe I think 12, and he's he's talking with the, the religious leaders and he's amazing them with his knowledge of the scriptures. What about Zechariah? Do you remember that story? Uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who was made to be mute during uh, the pregnancy of his wife until John was born um, because he saw a vision of an angel in the temple. Um, what about John the Baptist? John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for Jesus. That's a pretty significant endorsement, right? That's a pretty significant sign that Jesus is something great and then of course you have the healings you have the miracles you have the authoritative teaching um, all of those things are pretty significant signs so I think that helps us understand the reply that Jesus gives verse 12 he sighed deeply in his spirit and said um, have you ever like been drawn into a conversation with a person who really only ever wants to talk about one thing and you're kind of like, oh, this again. <laughs> um, you know, when I was a, when I was a banker at Chase back in the day, I had a customer who would come in fairly often and he would want to sit at my desk and talk about political conspiracy theories. And like I couldn't do anything about it because <laughs> I was like stuck at my desk. Right. So I was just stuck. And I mean, if you could watch my body language, you would see me sigh and outwardly express my displeasure with being stuck in that moment, okay? He sighs deeply in his spirit and he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got in the boat and went to the other side. So Jesus feels exasperation for these people. They're really like their, their forefathers. Do you remember Israel? Israel comes out of slavery in Egypt. How do they get out of slavery? Parting the Red Sea. Parting the Red Sea, Moses, right? The 10 plagues, like all of this incredible, miraculous work of God. They get out of Egypt. They meet God on this mountain with smoke and fire and all kinds of crazy stuff. And then they pass through the desert on their way to the land of Canaan that's supposed to be the promised land. They send spies into the land to scope it out. And the spies come back and say, what? It's too dangerous. Too dangerous. We can't possibly take this place, right? Really? After everything that you just saw, one of my favorite moments in the Old Testament 
is where God says to Moses, as the, the people of Israel are pressed up against the, dead, the, the Red Sea, Dead Sea, why can I not think of it? The Red Sea. And, uh, and, and, and Pharaoh's army is coming. And God says, don't panic. All you have to do is just lift your hands and watch. I will create a way for you. Right? That's my paraphrase. But this really incredible verse about God saying, why, why are you afraid? Why are you being fearful? Why are you uptight? Just, just watch and I will create uh, a miracle for you to save you, to redeem you. So these, these Pharisees are just like their forefathers. I mean, all the evidence is there that God can do uh, mighty works, that Jesus is sent by God, and yet they don't see the signs. Um, and Jesus asked this question, why do they seek a sign? Why does this generation seek a sign? What do you guys think? They have no faith. Yeah, exactly. They have no faith. Right? They don't believe. They don't believe the scriptures. They don't believe the prophets that came before them. They, they, they refuse to receive the sound teaching that Jesus has been offering them. Um, they don't believe even the reports of the miracles. You know, sometimes they don't even believe their own eyes. There's, there's, um, there's the scene where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And uh, John records that standing around were lots of people, and he says, and many who were there believed. So that means some who observed Lazarus being raised from the dead after three days in the tomb did not believe, right? Didn't even believe their own eyes. And what's Jesus' response? They, they try to test him. They want a sign. No, no sign will be given. Jesus denies their request. How many requests in Mark up to this point has Jesus denied? I mean, I didn't go back and count, but I, none stick out off the top of my head. You know, I think that just about every person who's come to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and said, I need this from you, he has responded and, and given it to them. Because they believed, right? They believed that he could. And I think the, in the, the verse 11, I think, is indicating to us that these people came in disbelief, right? Their intention was not to trust themselves to this man, but to, to you know, make him look silly, to prove him wrong. And there are places in the gospel that literally, the gospels that literally say, you know, and they came seeking to essentially prove him wrong, you know. Um, so Jesus promises no sign. Why is that? Is that an honest answer? Is that a true answer? Why does he give that answer? I think this is worth thinking about. Yeah, that's exactly right. Jonah, right? Jonah's crushing it up here. I don't know if you all can hear it, but even if he gave them a sign, they wouldn't believe, right? So I, I think that's what Jesus means. Um, is that you're not going to get any sign that's going to change your mind, guys. Um, because let's, let's look at a, a corollary passage here. If you want to flip to Matthew chapter 15, Matthew records this a, a little bit differently. Um, 16. Yeah, 16, sorry. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 16, it says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I mean, he's basically saying here, guys, you can see, you can interpret the signs regarding the weather, and there's all these signs over here that I've already given to you. And, and so don't play coy with me. You, you see what this is. You just refuse to accept it. You refuse to believe. So no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. 
And some, somebody want to explain what that is? The death and resurrection. Right. Yeah, Jonah was thrown into the ocean and swallowed by a fish. He went down essentially into the grave. And then he was spit up on the shore, you know, symbolically given new life. So death and resurrection, right? Um, and, and I think that we, well, we'll I'll hold off on that. Um, yeah, so if we go back to Mark chapter 8, the signs are all around them. They do not accept them. And if they don't accept the signs that have already been given, they won't accept any signs, okay? Uh, they're not here with truly open minds to learn from this man. They're, they're here to just tear down and diminish his ministry. Um, and I, I think at first the response from Jesus appears a little cryptic, but I think Jesus is playing 4D chess with these guys. Like, he is so far beyond them. They want him to do something that will prove that he's the Messiah, and Jesus refuses to grant them their request because the problem is not the sign, which he actually will do. The problem is their unbelief. Okay? Um, maybe another way that we could like kind of rephrase what Jesus is getting at here is no sign which you will believe will be given to you. Um, yeah, again, have you ever found yourself in a conversation with somebody where no matter the amount of evidence you give them, they are just absolutely unwilling to change their mind? They believe emotionally. Yeah, they might believe emotionally, emotionally or maybe they're just proud and stubborn. Um, you know, maybe there's some self-interest they have in keeping the position they have. I mean, there, there might be lots of motivations for why they do it, uh, but certainly there are people that no matter what evidence you give them, they're not going to change their mind. Um, and frankly, Romans chapter 1 deals with this when it says that man knows the truth because the things that are true about God are perceived in the things that he has made. The problem is not that it, the evidence isn't there. The problem is that man suppresses the truth. Man refuses to believe it. Uh, okay, so really the problem here is man's hard-heartedness. What about uh, what about the difference in um, the language between the way Mark records this and the way Matthew records this? Does anybody find this problematic? In Mark, Jesus says there will be no sign. In Matthew, Jesus says there will be no sign except the sign of Jonah. Is that a contradiction? No. I could imagine, you know, a... a, a committed atheist saying, look, your Bible's wrong. Look, look at these two records. They're, they're not the same. How, how would you have a solution for it, Jonah? Mark was just more talking about in the moment. At that moment, there was no sign given. He wasn't talking about in like the future because there's plenty more signs to be given. Okay. But I, I, think th I think there's probably a couple ways to solve this. I think that's a good one. That's one of them, right? Mark is referring to Jesus saying, I'm not going to give you a sign right now. Right? Where Matthew's focusing on the sign that will come in the future. Any other ways to solve the problem? Just different recollections. Okay, maybe they just remember the moment different. When something stuck with one that didn't together. Yeah, that's quite possible. Um, I think my only like my only pushback to that would be Jesus at one point says that the Spirit will guide them to remember all of the things that that he said and did. Um, but that, That's John yeah. 15, I think. Yeah, he would, they, um, you know, not that they wouldn't note them or that they wouldn't remember them. It's just they just had um, a different focus at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's totally fair. Um, you know, we, I mean, in any kind of record, you're going to get some kind of interpretation to it. So I think that's fair. I mean, my answer is sort of along those lines, which Mark, I think, is choosing to emphasize the unbelief that will never receive any sort of satisfactory answer to it, whereas Matthew is choosing to focus on kind of this exception that, like, look, this is the sign, and if you won't accept this sign, then there's nothing for you. Would you say that's the ultimate sign, too, that hinges man's salvation on us, the, the resurrection. Yeah, the total resurrection of Christ. Absolutely. 
yeah. the one sign you kind of have to believe. Yeah, that's that's also good. That that's the that is the distinctive sign, right? This is only God can raise the dead. Yeah, because only God can raise the dead, right? I mean, Christ alone has power over the grave. Um, and if and if you reject that, then you're not going to believe the miracles. And if you believe the miracles, but you reject the resurrection, then what's the point? Jesus is just some kind of magician. Um, if you ever hear somebody say, oh, the Bible is full of contradictions, how would you respond to that? Are, are they really contradictions, for one thing? Um, That's where I would go second, but I would, I would start with a simple response, show me one. Because <laughs> most of the time, people who spout that stuff, they don't have the slightest clue. Maybe one in 10 will be able to be like, okay, well, there's this one. You know, they just, pe this is just people regurgitating things that they've, they've heard. Read on the internet. Um, yeah, they've read it on some blog post or something like that. Um, so I, I would start with just show me one, you know? And then when they show you one, um, I, I think I would respond with, you know, how, how is that a contradiction, right? Show me how it's a contradiction. A contradiction, to be very clear, is, um, is this is not a contradiction. It is sunny today. There are clouds in the sky. That's not a contradiction. A contradiction is it is sunny today. It is not sunny today, right? So the Bible can give us scenes like this where Jesus is saying things maybe differently. And it's not a contradiction because in one passage it's saying he said this and in another passage it's not saying and he didn't say this. Does that make sense? Um, so, and then, and then I would add to this, I mean, Christians have been thinking about these things in the Bible for 2,000 years, and there are good answers to all of them. So you can always respond to them by saying, that's interesting, let me look into it a little bit more, and I'll try and get you an answer. Um, and then, of course, probably most importantly of all is, why do you distract from the resurrection by giving so much attention to these minor contradictions, right? You're trying to slip out from under the weight of what I'm telling you, which is that there's a man who claimed to be God who died and rose from the dead. What are you going to do with that information? All right, yeah. Or I would say, I'd rather be wrong now than wrong later. Believing the Bible, I'd rather be wrong now than later. That's you know the consequences. Is yeah. Turn out. Yeah. Uh, that's formally known as Pascal's wager, right? Has anybody heard of that before? I see that. I see. I've seen it a lot. Pascal's wager is this idea that like, look, if I believe in Jesus and I'm right, I gain everything. If I believe in Jesus and I'm wrong, I lose nothing. Yep. If I don't believe in Jesus and I'm uh, right, I gain nothing. If I don't believe in Jesus and I'm wrong, I lose everything, right? I mean, I, I, I kind of enjoy Pascal's wager. Pascal's book, The, the Pensee, is a fun read, but um, it's a philosophical approach to God, so it's not the ultimate approach to God. The ultimate approach to God is simply scripture, but it's an interesting thought experiment. Um, but, but I mean, even in that thought experiment, you can give somebody that very rational bit of information and it's not going to change their heart, right? Because it's just like the Pharisees, like the information, the sign is not sufficient. They need a miraculous heart change. Even in today's environment, you can point at the things that God created and the order in which he created it. Yeah. But people choose to yes, Don't do their own thing. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't do that. We should do that. Um, from time to time, people are persuaded by arguments like that. So we should make them. But the problem ultimately is not you know, insufficient information or insufficient signs. The problem is just unbelief. Is it like, um, was it Frank, Frank Drake? You know, what? What argument, what sign would you accept? Yeah. Who said that? You have Frank Turek. Okay, I've not heard that name he's before. A, he's a um, reason guy. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, 
what, what, what would yeah, you yeah, accept? Yeah. And they'll go, well, you have to come sit down right here with me and talk to me. And you, I don't think even that would. I mean, they might accept, well, okay, you're God, but that's not going to make them accept right. God. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent <coughs> question. Yeah, what sign would you accept? I like it. Once they would, they would be too late. That's when they'll be standing before the judgment throne of God. Yeah, and I mean, when that moment comes, they'll already be, be too late. standing before the judgment. That's right. They'll say they have to see it, but then simply ask them if they believe George Washington existed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. They didn't see him. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, I used to just say to people, well, do you believe China exists? Like, have you been there? No. <laughs> well, I've seen pictures. Well, I've, I've read a book about Jesus. Like, what's the difference? Um, you've not been there? That's a silly, yeah. Only, only believing things that you can see with your eyes or something like that is a foolish way to go through life. Nobody lives that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, yeah, if you were going to really hold a person like that consistent, then I would think you wouldn't eat beef unless you went to the farm where it was raised, you saw it butchered, you were on the truck that delivered it, and you were with the guy who packaged it, right? Like, you have faith in, in that process. Anyway, there's lots of inconsistencies with that. Okay, verse 14. So things just shift again, right? End of 13, Jesus gets in the boat. Um, he kind of leaves this mic drop. No sign for you. Gets in the boat. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Do you think they're stressed out about that, the disciples? Yes. Well, of course they are. <laughs> right? I think they are. Yes. And yet it's almost hilarious, isn't it? Because they've twice now seen Jesus take a few loaves, a few fish, meager amounts of food, and feed thousands of people. Every time I read that passage, it's Yeah. It's hilarious, right? Verse 15. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I, I think they were like, what is Jesus talking about? Like, we're talking about the fact we don't have dinner tonight. And he, <laughs> how, what in the world? Okay, 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They, they're like, I don't even know what to say to you, Jesus. Back to the bread conversation. 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Um, this is a weird little scene here because there's like two ideas that are kind of like twisting together and we have to kind of untwist them a little bit first the context is going to help us uh understand what's being discussed here because jesus brings up in verse um 12 leaven and does anybody remember ways in which leaven is used in the bible so the Old Testament refers to unleavened bread. That's symbolic of something. Do you know what it is? Well, well, a lot of the time, I, I take it a lot of the time that the leaven is kind of like, well, he talked about the, the word of God being the bread <clears throat> or Jesus being the bread of life, but mostly his word is bread for us, bread for our spirits. And um, when it's leaven, that's like doctrine, especially when it says beware of the Levin is saying, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So I think, well, let's press into that a little bit. It, maybe it's doctrine. I, I'm going to go a different way, so we can discuss that more in a minute. But even in what you're saying is, you, you see, this is why this is important to talk about. Because in the Old Testament, we are told, they are told, the Jews are told, get all the leaven out of the house. But then you said leaven is the word of God, or bread refers to the word of God, right? So this is why we have to think very carefully about this. Because if in the Old Testament leaven meant something, and we bring that idea into the New Testament without thinking about it, then are we saying get rid of the word of God? No. Right? So let's talk about it a little more. Yeah, were you, you said something back there? 
Well, I thought your, your question, how does love and I think it uses it good and bad, but it's the principle of how love works as what it's focused yeah. on. Bread versus the cracker. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it does use it as good and bad. And this is one of the things that, that's tricky, right? Um, and, and then we'll talk about what leaven does. But Matthew 13, 33, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like someone who took a measure of leaven and worked it into some flour. So in that case, it's a good illustration, right? But then Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the entire dough, throw this sinner out of the church. So the, the real point here is not necessarily whether it's being used or bad, but what is the effect of leaven, right? I've recently become um, mildly obsessed with making bread. It's really fun and it's delicious like good homemade bread and I'm not talking about like a bread machine like I take raw flour mix it with water add yeast and salt I do this thing called auto leasing where it sits and then I let it rise for like five hours and then I proof it in baskets and then I put it in Dutch ovens in my oven and I make these really delicious loaves of bread and uh, part of it is with sourdough you use actual leaven which is like if you just wet flour and you leave it, it has yeast in it already. And in time, it will turn into this really like goopy stuff. And you just need a little bit. And, and the dough will like triple in size. So that is really where the, the, the value of leaven comes in. And we have to think about it in the different contexts, okay? And I, so I think in this context, Jesus, the, 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 the disciples are thinking about food because they're hungry. Jesus is reflecting on the conversation that he just had. And these two things come together, and they're thinking about bread, and he's like, hey, this is a great illustration. Be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Okay? So I think doctrine could be a, an answer to that, you know, that, that their doctrine does spread like that. But I think in this context, what Jesus really has in mind is their unbelief. Their unbelief could be infectious. And, and, and look, look how quickly the disciples moved to unbelief. What did they recently see concerning bread? Jesus feed all kinds of people with almost nothing, right? I mean, they saw it, and now they're looking at the bread, and they're going, crud, there's not enough dinner for all of us. And yet all they would have had to do was say, Jesus, can you feed us? Hypocrisy is, a, is another thing that he says, and you know, unbelief and hypocrisy is like they believe, like we talked about, they believe certain things, but they're not believing other facts that they would normally take that wasn't Jesus. Yeah, they would believe. Not believe. They believe the traditions of the elders, but they don't believe Jesus, who's come with signs and miracles. Yeah, like they're not believing consistently. Yeah, they they're they're believing inconsistently. Absolutely. But you know, when they left. Egypt and you know they were told not to put leaven in their bread. I, I think it was a matter of time, right? Because they had to quickly get out, and it was a symbolism of that. Yeah. And I think conversely, leaven takes time to get to the whole lump, and I think that's that's the warning. If you start with a little over time, yeah, you're going to be corrupt. So this is what you got not have any. A absolutely. Anything. You know what else is kind of interesting about leaven is, um, it's it's kind of. Um, it's kind of picky. And what I mean by that is you have to cultivate it. And so if we're going to say that, that leaven is, you know, unbelief or something like that, and it does spread and a little spreads a lot, but it only spreads if you're, if you are cultivating. Yes. Right. If you're feeding it. In fact, I, in order to keep my leaven going, I have to feed it every day or I have to put it in the fridge that, that, slows the whole process of it eating and growing down. Um, so think about that, right? I mean, un I think our faith has to be fed. That's why we need God's word. That's why we need the community of the church. Um, it's why we need to turn our hearts to God in worship and prayer. But unbelief also can be fed, and it can lead to spreading like that. Right? Yeah. Why did he specifically mention Herod? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, I mean, Herod is a, he's just a false Jew. He's hard-hearted and unbelieving. He's a sellout to Rome. He, he, 
I think he threw a lot of favors to the Jews to kind of appease them, but he was just manipulating them for his own political gain. A real politician. Yeah, yeah, a politician. That's exactly right. But that's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure. Other than the Matthew account. I didn't says, realize he was a Jew. He's technically like not a Jew. He's an Idumean. Okay. He's but but he he basically set himself up as a Jew. The Jews didn't see him as a Jew, but they accepted him as a ruler because he was willing to kind of buy them off. Caesar did view him as a Jew because he was from essentially the same region, which is why he put him over the Jewish people. But what were you going to say, Rick? Would Herod be over the Sadducees as a political thing? No, not technically, but, but sort of, because Israel was a theocracy, right? So... You have this kind of weird conflux of things where uh, Herod, Herod, I mean, Israel was conquered by Rome. So Herod is, he's reporting to Caesar. And yet, he's not going to be able to get anything done unless the Pharisees, unless he's got them in his pocket. He's a compromise. He's being hypocrite. Yes. Also the yeah, Sadducees. Hypocrite is a great one. Also the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, but in one of the parts, Herod was thinking that Jesus was like John. John raised, raised from the from dead. The dead. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Herod is is a little bit of a complex figure. And actually, um, well, we, I handed out a, f a form a few weeks ago discussing the different Herods that even come up. But um, uh, yeah, my guess is maybe it's the same hypocrisy, right? Well, you know, the Matthew says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Mark says the Pharisees and Herod. Herod. And I'm wondering if there's a play on that or, if, you know, Herodians, I don't know what that means. Are those just the followers? Yeah, they would be people loyal to him, not necessarily loyal to like the, the cult aspect of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Um, but in, in some ways, it's all the same. Once you get under the surface, it's all the same. It's it's unbelief. It's it is it's hypocrisy. It's self centeredness. Um, it's a refusal to honor God. Um, all right, so Jesus is using this object lesson of the bread to tell his disciples that uh, they have plenty. They have everything they need if they actually have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that believe, right? They're not in any need. Even though the bread may be running out, um, Jesus is able to supply all of their needs. Um, that is, that's assuming they persist in their belief. Yeah. We can, in the day-to-day -day life, we can really in this passage of Jesus, you know, that receive where circumstances, you know, came, we kind of like panic, and we really like forget that there is Jesus no? provide everything. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. This is this is actually very sad to me. Yeah. It's nature, human nature. It is. We're going to even, I'm going to even talk about that a little bit more in my sermon today. Um, you know, and I think maybe going back to the idea of like feeding leaven, that's, that's the big thing. Is like, are you going to feed your heart with things that remind you about God's power, his goodness, his love for you, his mercy? Or are you going to feed your heart and mind with things that cause you to feel fear or doubt or disbelief, you know. Um, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear on this, that like we need to set our minds on things that are above. Um, Colossians chapter 3 literally says that. So, I mean... Build ourselves up. What's that? Build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Yeah. By one another. We're not a finished product. We need to keep building yeah. Yep. Exhort one another, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And I mean, a good, just a good example of this is like Tuesday's an election, right? Like, I mean, you're being bombarded from every angle to get your whole psyche wrapped up in politics. And if your psyche is wrapped up in that, then you're either going to rejoice or despair at the outcome. And in reality, it's irrelevant. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go vote or something like that. It just means that that shouldn't be a, your all-consuming thought. Um, 
Yeah, I think maybe kind of at the end here, what I, what I want to do in the end to, to wrap up through verse 21 is just kind of draw a straight line from the, the Pharisees who come to him with hard hearts and how it's possible that that affects the disciples because by the time they get in the boat, they're like, there's no food. And so you have this unbelief of the Pharisees that's now sort of manifesting itself in the apostles, the disciples, and just how quickly we can get sucked into believing or disbelieving things on such tenuous grounds. You know, these guys come with just a question and, and the disciples have already seen Jesus do these incredible things. And yet the very next moment, they're questioning whether Jesus is sufficient. And, um, you know, we can just very easily get sucked into thinking a certain way, even though we've got all kinds of evidence to the contrary. Does that make sense? What I'm, what I, like, I don't think Mark is just randomly, like, <clears throat> throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. I think he's, he's got this moment with the Pharisees on the shore, and it's followed by this moment with the, the disciples on the boat, and there's a connection between them. Okay. I think there's a situation too where they're they they just got finished being bombarded by these people. Yeah. And and when you when you're in that position all the time, maybe they weren't all the time, but if they were in that if you're in that position all the time, it wears you wears you away. You need to step back and feed yourself spiritually rather than defend, defend, defend. That's great. But you've got to Build yourself up as well. Yeah, absolutely. This is an extreme example of that, but like communist re-education camps, what do they do? They remove all information that is contrary to the line of thinking they want you to have, and they just bombard you with it. And eventually in time, you begin to believe it. All right, verse 20. I was just looking up kind of like Sadducees, and they were in charge of the temple. And yeah. Of course, that was Herod's temple. And... Um, the hypocrisy of like attending to the things of God and ignoring the way your things were raised that's, there. Um, that's their hypocrisy, their leaven. It's like you, you care so much about God, but God's on, in the flesh. Yeah, that's good. You're, you're ignoring it. That's good. I mean, the the the, the evidence is pretty clear that the, the Sadducees, in particular, because yeah, they controlled the temple. They didn't. They they were wrapped up in politics. They didn't care anything about the things of God. They were in it to line their own pockets. And, and I, you guys might have not been here the, the time that I mentioned this. Actually, the Sadducees, um, they totally disappeared from history after the destruction of the temple because that was their seat of power. Whereas the Pharisees were more localized in the synagogue. And so their movement kind of, it, it transitioned, but it, it continued through the, the synagogue authority. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Okay, this is another healing that Jesus does that's done privately rather than publicly. There was one of those at the end of chapter 7. Remember the man who is uh, deaf and mute? And Jesus, I think, spits actually on his tongue and puts his fingers in his ears. This is a very tactile healing, very hands-on. And this is... I'm fairly certain this is the only healing that occurs in two parts, right? Where it's not entirely achieved in one singular moment. Do you think that that's because Jesus didn't have sufficient power to fully heal the man? The only time I really see that ever happening is because of insufficient faith on our part. So insufficient faith on our part but I actually don't think that's why it happens in this case. That's what I'm just saying. Most of the time, that's when I see that. But okay. Probably, I don't think it is in this case. I don't, I don't see it. doesn't say that the man didn't believe it. So then, so then why? 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 Okay, if, it, if it's not because Jesus doesn't have enough power or the man doesn't have enough faith or something like that, 
why why does this happen? I don't know if it's uh, I'm not making the case I apply it in the but to me I see like um, some people see they can they can see it but they can't see it, you know what I mean? And it's imagery. I think that's I think that's exactly the case, actually. Again, let's draw a straight line through the Pharisees asking Jesus the question, the disciples on the boat, and this moment of healing. I think Mark has all of these things in mind, and this is a teachable moment. Jesus does this on purpose. Okay, please understand this. It's not as if he like, you know, goes and puts his hand on him and the spark doesn't work and it's like, oh shoot, we gotta try this again, okay? Round two. And that and then it sticks. No, this is intentional and Jesus is teaching. This is an object lesson. And Rick, I think you're right on. The disciples have seen in part, right? The image of who Jesus actually is, it's becoming more visible to them. Now, if we were to keep reading, you know what comes up shortly after this? Peter's confession and the transfiguration. Right? So the disciples are like in this two-stage process, if you will, of going from seeing Jesus who can make lots of food for people to understanding this is in fact the Son of God who is the exact representation of the Father in glory. Right? So I think that's part of the purpose for this. Um, the Pharisees come into the picture to diminish the works of Jesus and spread their unbelief. And... The fair, and the, the disciples are, are tempted towards unbelief as well, seeing Jesus only in a fuzzy way, and yet Jesus is going to finish this work of showing them who he is. Um, yeah, and thank God for his... Jesus doesn't give this blind man really like an opportunity to speak other than the question, do you see anything? And he says... You know, I see this image of people, but they look like trees walking. But can you imagine if the blind man had said, you know, Jesus, you tried to heal me. I, I can only sort of see this is a stupid waste of my time. Let's, I mean, screw it. Forget it. Um, Jesus doesn't even give him that opportunity because he's going to bring it to completion. Right? So I think the lesson here is, is um, you know, Trust this man. He is who he says he is, even when you can't maybe see it quite the way that you should. He is trustworthy. He will bring it to completion. He can. Um, you know, walking by faith instead of sight means that we, we are confident of the things that we can't see, right? That's what Hebrews teaches us. Or maybe another corollary would be 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. I mean, as clear as we see Jesus right now through his word, through his church, by the revelation of the Spirit, it's, it's fuzzy compared to what it will be one day, right? Um, and then, of course, yes, in the next section, Peter is going to see very clearly. There's one other reason for this miracle here, okay? Um, and, I, and I think that it is, uh, well, maybe not just this miracle. Uh, probably this whole set of things that we've seen. Um, things are really going to shift from, from this point on. The, the focus is going to move away from big crowds of people to the disciples. Um, we're not necessarily going to see as many of these incredible mass public healings. Things are going to become more intimate. Um, there's going to be less of Jesus saying things like, um, or, or, or Mark recording that he taught in parables to make it, difficult for people to see. Jesus is going to be much more explicit about who he is, what he came to accomplish, right? I mean, the things that follow this scene, we're not there yet, but you've got Peter's profession of faith. You've got Jesus saying that he came to die. You've got the transfiguration, like the whole purpose of his coming and his ministry and his, who he is, is, is becoming much more clear, much more visible. 
Um, and, and that's going to shift things to Mark taking Jesus from Galilee, where he's been this whole time, straight down to Jerusalem, to the cross. All right. Um, yeah, so the stage, I think, is being set for those who have seen dimly up to this point to now see clearly. And maybe that's another piece of this, is the first half of Mark's gospel is the fuzzy picture. The second half is the clear picture. Does that make sense? All right, I, we will wrap up there. I know it's a little bit early. I apologize for that since you woke up early to get here. Um, but uh, let me just remind you, and I'll put it on the app and I'll send out an email. There is no adult Sunday school for the next two weeks. Okay, no adult Sunday school for the next two weeks. Um, I will not be here, and so stay home. When we come back, we'll pick up in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. All right, any questions, comments, last word? All right, let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would help us to see clearly and that we would not be drawn into unbelief, that we would set our eyes on Christ, that our hope would be in him, that we would have faith and trust, even when it seems like there's no reason for us to do that because the circumstances around us are difficult. God, teach us to just trust you and to believe you. And um, we thank you for the confession that Jesus made, um, that he is the Son of God, that he came to seek and save the lost. We thank you for the cross where he paid the penalty of our sin. We thank you for the resurrection where he overcame the consequence of sin, death. And we thank you that you've given us the gift of your spirit to guide us in belief and help us understand your word. We just thank you for these things. And I pray that with all of those things, we would not stray into unbelief. And I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.